I'm Caitlin. And I'm Laura. And this is Obscuriana. Hi, everyone. As you're probably aware, the audio quality in our last episode is not what we would have liked. But we're learning. And we're getting new equipment as we discover how this works. Bear with us as we make improvements. Yes, and any and all suggestions are so welcome. Feel free to reach out to us and let us know your thoughts. We are open. But we are going to talk about the cocktail. Wonderful. I'm so excited for this. I wish I like actually prepared and my ADHD brain allowed me to make a cocktail prior to this. Yeah, I have to go to work after this, so I'm I'm not drinking before work. <laughs> All right, so we're going to dive right in. We're going to start out by talking about the first mention and kind of the origin and initial definition of a cocktail. Okay. So it was first mentioned in print that we can find in a British paper in 1798, but it doesn't actually give a definition. That's a, it was a satirical mention. And so it just has that reference to the word. And then we get a definition as an alcoholic beverage in 1806. And that's from a Hudson, New York paper called the Balance and Columbian Repository, where the editor, uh, Harry Croswell, answered the question, what is a cocktail? And he defined it as a stimulating liquor composed of any kind of sugar, water, and bitters vulgarly called a bittered sling. So a sling was already a mixed drink that was very common at the time and was just the same. It was the spirit, sugar, and water, but no bitters. And of course, there were other drinks at the time that would be like gin and bitters or brandy and bitters. So it's kind of combining the sling with, with the bitters, which was known to be a medicinal element, since bitters is really just distilled liquor with uh, different herbal essences in it. So so I have no idea why, but I'm feeling very much like this was, wasn't there like, I think it was either the entire United States or just a specific state or school district that had ketchup as part of the vegetable groups that like you could feed kids for a while. <laughs> For some reason, it's like, oh, we added medicinal bitters. It was a thing. Ketchup was considered a vegetable, which uh, is is odd because it's just a particular style of sauce. It's not even always made with tomatoes. I, I don't know. And it's pretty much all sugar. Like, let's be honest, sugar and vinegar. <laughs> right. Sugar, vinegar, and tomatoes anymore. That's about it. And tomatoes are a fruit. So someone got very confused. Anyway, so so this brings up an interesting thing where we they already had mixed drinks. They just weren't defined as a cocktail. Hmm. So what were people drinking before that? Yeah. Well, a lot of things. I mean, obviously they would just drink whatever that liquor was, usually watered down a little bit, especially in the morning, they'd water it down. Yeah. Because for a long time, and and we, we know this to be true, they would water down even ales and things to give to children because the alcohol content made it so that the water was safer to drink. Yes, exactly. So think about today. Right. You're like, you're, you're not going to give a kid alcohol. Well, I mean, it was probably only about one and a half or two percent. Yeah. It was just enough to kill off whatever was in the water. But anyway, so what, what we've been drinking before this point is that we're talking about the 18th century, 1700s and before what you see a lot are punches. And the early 1800s, we start downsizing from that communal punch bowl or like a, a big batch of punch to single cup portions, um, especially in bars and restaurants. I mean, at home, you know, you'd have a punch and everybody just kind of digs in their their cup. So we're starting to see these single cup portions. So, yeah. I mean, 1830s, it does kind of seem to correlate with the rise of restaurants and popularity of actually like dining out. It does, absolutely. So, 
it seems like there was a cultural shift that kind of accompanied the transition in the beverage world too. Yeah, absolutely. Because we're talking about things that, that are not just as easy as, as putting a spirit in a glass and throwing some water over it. We're starting to really get these different sort of drinks with fruit or, or other things. Yeah. Really what we're looking at is a cocktail is a set of ingredients. It's not anything like we, we think about today kind of like any mixed drink is, is a cocktail, right? Like a whiskey sour might be considered a cocktail. Technically it's not. It falls under a sour. It's different classifications that fall under that title of a mixed drink, or at the time it was called a fancy drink. I like it. I think I'm changing my lexicon as of today. Well, and that's what's interesting about this is because it did kind of evolve from just being, and we'll see this a little bit later, it did evolve from being this this simple classification of spirit, water, sugar, bitters. But of course, when we say water, we're not just talking about water, we're talking about ice. Yeah. So there's other classifications of, of these fancy drinks that some of which are going to sound pretty familiar. Like I said, a sour was common at the time. So was a toddy, which could be hot or cold. Eggnog, of course, was, was common. A sling, a cooler, julep, which we still find all, all over the place, especially in the United States today. Yes, in the South. Um, or a smash or a fizz. There's 20 more different categories, most of which we don't hear as much about anymore, like a sangaree or a shrub or a daisy. My dad loves shrubs. Shout out to you, Dad. I know you're probably listening. Yeah, no, shrubs are delicious. And shrubs have a lot of times that'll be like a vinegar base Mm -hmm. to it as well. And so that's kind of a different take on it too. Part of this also comes from, I'm a bar manager. So like for me, this is like fascinating, but I'm also trying to strive to kind of bring, and this is is the kind of the feel of some of our cocktails are bringing back some of these older cocktails. And so, yeah, so so over time, fancy becomes the non-in-vogue word to use. And so it's either mixed drinks or, like I said, we're going to see it a little bit later. Um, we'll talk about kind of how that evolves and, and where we start seeing this shift to any mixed drink being called a cocktail. And even up into the 30s post-prohibition, we're still seeing these other mixed drinks, the ones that I just called out, the sour, the eggnog, julep, all of those are still separate from cocktails. But we see the cocktail become a much broader category. Um, it seems to kind of replace that fancy drink. Which is a travesty. Right? I want a, I want a modern book of fancy drinks. Yes. And it's not like 18 ingredient, some of these like blog posts that are like, oh, here's this super easy thing that has 12 ingredients. That's not easy. No, because we know people weren't making that in restaurants when restaurants were just getting started. No. Most things were three or four drinks and it was the same formula. You just added a different spirit depending on what people ordered. That makes a lot of sense. And what we're not seeing at this time, especially in the in the U.S., is vodka. We don't see vodka until until after, well after Prohibition. What we're seeing is a lot of, actually a lot of brandy and then gin and rum are going to be the three that you see most often. Even things like sherry are used in a lot of these, these drinks. I mean, that seems kind of intense to me, but go for it. <laughs> I enjoy sherry to a point, but I can't picture it as a simple cocktail or at this point fancy drink there's so many different classifications of sherry too i mean it doesn't have to be a a sweeter sherry you know it could be a little bit of a drier sherry i don't know to me some of those sweet sherries are i i like sherry but some of those sweet sherries are like you could really tell that that is a raisin it tastes like you purified raisins and just put it in a glass mr raisin or whatever with his top hat like on the red boxes that's just gonna come like dancing out of your bottle like at some point in the evening Right, right. No, that's literally what it tastes like to me. I'm like, I like sherry, but that's a little much. 
anyway, so back we're going we're gonna go back to 1806. Okay. Um. So we first get this definition, but then there's a man in the U.S. who decides that he really wants to transport ice from colder climates to warmer climates. His name was Frederick Tudor, and he's known as the Ice King. Naturally, that feels very apt. It right. Absolutely. So he was taking ice from uh, from New York and and further north and trying to transport it to places like Jamaica. Uh, good on him. I know. No, it took him about 10 years to figure out how to do this and how to have this kind of refrigerated thing to, to transport within. And it made him a billionaire. And then he could honestly, he could be a podcast unto himself. He it, it's a wild ride, but it did make it so that we could transport uh, ice across the U.S. and internationally. So it took him about 10 years to figure out how to get this to work correctly. And he made a ton of money because what he was doing was taking the ice down there and then he was bringing fruit back. <laughs> a smart man. And as, as I know you and I both know, and, and some of our listeners might as well, I partly blame this for why, uh, you know, I think this is kind of the springboard for why the U.S. has such a reliance on ice. Yeah, no, it's gotta be. You order water and it's gonna be a glass of ice water, you know, whereas in, in Europe they cool things down, but they don't serve things with ice for the most part. I think and, and I'm extrapolating a little bit, but but because this was focused in, in the US, I feel like that's kind of where that reliance first comes from. No, I think so because I was just listening to a podcast the other day on Victoria and Abdul. Yeah. Which I like love that story in the movie and oh, I absolutely. don't care if it's not perfectly historically accurate. I love it. But they were saying that the story of when old Queen Victoria wanted to try was a mango and it kept coming to her rod and that was actually a true story. Yeah, it was. And I'm like, man, if the Ice King had been there, this is clearly, you know, it was before Victoria's time. Yeah, because that would have been 18, uh, let's see, Abdul would have been 1870s. Yeah. Yeah. Or later. Uh, and so, yeah, this is, I mean, this was 1806. Yeah. Oh yeah. There definitely would have been ice, but yeah, it's, it's still, well, then we get the, the interesting story. And this is a, a just a, a brief interlude where IPA comes about because they were trying to find a, a beer that they could transport from England to India without it going bad. So they, they created uh, a, a, the India pale ale as a, as an imitation of a, a pale ale, but with the more hops Oh, that's crazy. And other ingredients, they were able to keep it for the travel. I always wondered why it was called India Pale Ale. Because I was told at one point, like, hey, it didn't originate in India. And I'm like, okay, well, you know, was it British? Because, like, you know, at that point, the sun rose and set on the British Empire. But now that makes so much more sense. Yeah, it was the only thing they could get that would be sustained for the whole the whole journey to, to India. So anyway, yeah, so the Ice King could be a whole, that's, I, I just touched on it briefly, um, because it does give us that, that ice that makes what we think of as a cocktail, either for chilling it and then straining out the ingredients or to, to mix in with it. Man, the Ice King, I had no idea how much he affected my life. Right, right, absolutely. After this, we kind of go a little bit, uh, about 50 years, and we're going to hit the first real bartender's guide and it is called the bartender's guide uh it was published in 1862 by a man named jerry thomas he was a bartender from connecticut who he worked all over uh america and europe and it's really the first comprehensive bar book that we get later editions uh are and end up being titled how to mix drinks and there's a whole 
if, if you know anything about books that are from about this time period, most of them have like really long titles. Oh yeah. Um, so there's like, there's more. So it's like the bartender's guide and then it like goes on for like an entire sentence. But you know, most, most of the time when you reference it, it's the bartender's guide. Okay. Uh, so there were a couple different editions, but the first one was 1862 and this contains 10 cocktails. So was it like a pamphlet almost, or was were they just as wordy in describing the cocktails? So the the recipes themselves are pretty basic. Okay. But the book, it is 244 pages. Oh my gosh, for 10 cocktails. Well, it's not just cocktails. It's it's more than just that. So so as we think of cocktails today, yes, most of this book is cocktails. But there are 10 drinks in this book that are called a cocktail. The rest of it is, I mean, there's a whole section on fixes and sours. There's a whole big section on punches. It's all recipes. So they were still delineating between... Right. This is the first recipe book that contains cocktails. Okay. So before this, I mean, people had published pamphlets and and other books, but this is really the first comprehensive recipe books for the bar setting. Wow. It's kind of the encyclopedia of mixed drinks that became the standard bearer for cocktails at the time. And is it still kind of the gold standard today, or is it now one of those obscure things that only people who really like cocktails know about? It, mostly the latter. It's definitely not a modern guide, especially when it comes to the measurements. And we'll get into that in, a, in just a minute. But the measurements are not, you know, what you think. And there's a whole section in here on how to make different syrups and literally how to make ales and flavored brandies and all of these other things some of the recipes are a little longer and more involved but some of them are also pretty straightforward like the one i've got pulled up right now is a hot whiskey sling it says one wine glass of whiskey fill one third full with boiling water great nutmeg on top that's the recipe that's it you know so these aren't these aren't necessarily complicated or or long and involved like this one's literally three lines you know but most people would know kind of how to do a sling and so you're just making sure that you know the proportions and what glass to use for consistency's sake it is the bartender's guide so you know it is it is also designed for bartenders who are in the business or maybe starting out to have a reference guide okay so we have 10 recipes called a cocktail in this book one of them is actually a bottled cocktail and we're going to get into that in a little bit but we have a champagne cocktail a brandy cocktail a fancy brandy cocktail gin cocktail and a fancy gin cocktail so see we're still in that mode of fancy drinks there is a japanese cocktail jersey cocktail soda cocktail and a whiskey cocktail so basically you know they're variations on a theme we're seeing where you know you get brandy gin whiskey in that cocktail sense so most of these are three to four dashes of gum syrup i'm going to define that in a second two dashes of bitters one wine glass of spirit a piece of lemon peel and depending on what spirit you're using you have one to two dashes of curacao and it's either stirred with ice or shaken and strained into a fancy red wine glass. Let me go back and define gum syrup real quick. Gum syrup is usually a rich, simple syrup, which a rich, simple syrup is a two to one ratio of sugar to water, and it adds gum arabic. And what that does is it adds a silkiness and smoothness of texture. It also helps preserve the syrup, while even though sugar is a preservative itself, the gum arabic actually helps with the longevity and keeps the sugar from crystallizing out of the syrup. Okay, so now I'm seeing where bottled cocktails might be coming into this. Right. Wow. Because I've, you know, we've made simple syrup a lot for many different reasons. Yeah. And never even thought about 
adding any sort of stabilizer. Most of those, that's the standard. He actually gives recipes for bitters, but for these, he specifies Bogart's bitters, which is interesting because there was no Bogart's bitters. <laughs> oh, even better. That was uh, misspelled in the, in the first edition and was corrected in later editions. It was Boker's bitters. Oh my god. I know. But anyway, so, so Boker's bitters was one of the leading aromatic bitters sold at the time until the Pure Food and Drug Act of 1906 prohibited the sale of them because what they what doors were doing was they were claiming, you know, that it was a medical cure-all. Oh. And so they're like, you can't do that. That's wrong. <laughs> a little bit of snake oil is happening here. Right. And it's not to say that it's not good for you, you know, or that it doesn't have some some properties that might not be, you know, bad, but trying to sell it as a cure-all medicine is not great. Although, I mean, because I love old advertisements and I feel like everything was a cure-all. Oh, absolutely. This will cure what ails you. I don't know what's in it. Uh, and there were many different kinds of bitters. Boker's was by no means the first. That is uh, Staunton's, if I'm not mistaken, which is actually a, an English product. The two big brands now are Peychaud's and Angostura. So there are actually rare surviving bottles of Boker's bitters. Of course, given the fact that they're, you know, 150, 200 years old, they have deteriorated flavors, but experts have been able to taste it and determine that it tasted of chocolate, coffee, and dark spice. What we know about the ingredients for that, that it included cassia, which is that fake cinnamon, cardamom, and bitter orange peel. So you get that kind of herby, spicy, citrus, and bitter. It was curing everything, so it can't taste perfect. <laughs> Uh, well, the bittering agent is actually comes from gentian root. Even in Thomas's Bartender's Guide, a lot of them do have gentian, but some of them don't. So I don't know when we switched to all bitters have gentian root, but it was sometime fairly recently that it's kind of the common factor of all bitters now. Wow. Okay. I'm going to have to go check my bitters. Yeah, right? I do want to define one other thing from that first proportion with the gum syrup, the bitters, spirit, lemon peel. And curacao, which if you don't know, is a liquor that's traditionally made from the dried peels of the laraja, which is descended from a bitter Seville orange that's only grown on the island of curacao. Usually anymore, it is a bright blue liqueur. It is the same color as toilet bowl cleaner. Don't mix them up. Yeah, no, I can see that being bad. No, it is. You're right. You're absolutely right. So it's, uh, it is bright blue. But at the time, there would have been an orange color, uh, clear but it might have been blue as well. So that was in vogue at the time for like kind of the thing to add a little bit of sweetness, a little bit of extra flavor and a little bit of color. There were two drinks that actually already are breaking the mold of the cocktail, that being the spirit, sugar, water, bitters. And that's the Jersey cocktail and the soda cocktail. So the Jersey cocktail uses sugar instead of the gum syrup, which is fine. And it uses cider, which is not a spirit. It's still an alcoholic beverage because so it's, it's going to be hard cider, which was very common at the time. And also would be acceptable for years to come when you're starting to talk about prohibition and the folks who were for temperance, but not teetotaling. Yes. So those were the folks who were okay with wine and beer, but not with hard spirits. So they would have probably still drunk a Jersey cocktail. Soda cocktail was the same as the Jersey cocktail, except you're just using soda water instead of cider. So basically it's soda water with bitters and sugar. So it creates kind of a lower proof or very, very low alcohol drink because bitters has a little bit of a spirit to it, but you're only using a couple of dashes. 
So it's really not going to be anything where you're going to notice the the alcohol in it. One of the things that, that Jerry Thomas does, because this is the first mention of a cocktail in a recipe book, he does define at the beginning of the section, he says, the cocktail is a modern invention. Keep in mind, this is 1862 and is generally used on fishing and other sporting parties. Although some patients, patients is italicized, insist that it is good in the morning as a tonic, which tells me that it would have been watered down a lot more. Yeah. Because people did drink first thing in the morning. Anyway, he goes on to say the crusta is an improvement on the cocktail and is said to have been invented by Santina, a celebrated Spanish caterer. I have found nothing to back that up, <laughs> but I feel like that's important to know. So the crusta is is very similar. So it is an improvement, but we'll see in a little bit. It does not form the basis of the improved cocktail. The crusta uses the same base as a cocktail, but the glass is rimmed with sugar and a larger lemon peel. And it's shaken and strained out into the glass. So you could even think about like if you get like a lemon drop martini, but you poured an old fashioned into it instead of the lemon drop. <laughs> it's going to be it's going to be a little bit sweeter because you do have that sugar rim. It's going to be a little bit more lemon. But, you know, I can see where that's a solid drink. At first, I was just thinking, oh, there's no way. But yeah, actually, that would probably be be pretty good. One day I'm going to order that and test it out. Order order a brandy crusta and see what bartender actually goes. Yeah, I know what that is. <laughs> yeah. I'll try that out at Applebee's. Oh, that'll go great. That'll go great. <laughs> so thoughts so far is that it is the classic cocktail something that you could see yourself drinking? To some extent, yes. But I, I don't know if it would be a favorite. Because, like, let's be honest, the spirits in that are pretty strong. Yeah, there's not a lot of dilution in those. And and like you said, you know, you can, if you're drinking it in the morning, you would obviously thin it down uh, to make it more of a tonic. But yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty strong. I probably actually would have really enjoyed the Jersey one. With the cider? Yeah. If I got transported back in time, I would have had a moment of shock, quickly recovered and been just fine. Right. Helped along by a cocktail. <laughs> Yes, exactly. exactly. Cocktail would probably be like number two in the evening to something else. Sure, sure. Right? It might not have been my go-to, but I don't think they sound bad at all. I think I can see where like the modern cocktail has built upon this. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. So after this, we kind of quickly get into a, a very broadening category. So it, there's an 1884 book, The Modern Bartender's Guide. That adds a few more cocktails, but they're still consistent with that spirit, sugar, water, bitters. Sometimes they have an extra couple of ingredients, but looking even to Thomas's book, we have curacao in yeah. it. So, you know, it's not, it's not a strict, those are the only four ingredients, but it is unusual to have bitters and sugar in the same drink. So we saw that spirit, sugar, water, bitters, we're just adding something else to it. So we got a little wild. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So 1884, we're looking at, there's one... Um, that is the East India cocktail, which I thought was interesting. It has raspberry syrup, red curacao, angostura bitters, maraschino, brandy, and lemon peel. 100% would drink that. Yeah, so they're using the raspberry syrup instead of the gum syrup. You're still adding sugar, right? And was it the same proportions, or were they starting to play with proportions yet? Pretty close. You're still looking at, you know, a, a couple dashes here, a couple dashes there, but you're mostly looking at that brandy being the bulk of the drink. Back to this 1884 books, where this is actually the first mention of the Manhattan cocktail, which has changed a little bit. There's two variations in this book, one with French vermouth and gum syrup. 
and one with curacao and Italian vermouth. Okay. We also see the Martinez, which is the same as the Manhattan, but you're using gin instead of whiskey. So we're starting to see where we're naming things a little bit differently. Right. Yeah. So it's not like it's a gin Manhattan. It's the Martinez. I see. I see where they're going with this. We also get a couple different vermouth cocktails, which are kind of along the same lines as the Martinez, except you're doing more vermouth and you're taking out that uh, that gin or whiskey. And also, this book has a recipe for gum syrup, which is oh. I, I mention because it's odd. It doesn't have gum arabic in it. No. <laughs> so it's gum syrup, but it's just using loaf sugar and water. And so loaf sugar was what we used at the time. It was going out of fashion. We're starting to see more refined sugar or cube sugar. Okay. But at the time, it was still very prevalent. When they processed the sugar down, they would make it into these cones. And what you would do is you would take like a rasp and just grate off what you need, or they would have sugar nips. And so you would like literally just cut an amount of sugar and then have a, a, a bit of sugar from there. It's starting to transition out of out of loaf sugar, but for large amounts of sugar, that was still the most cost effective way is to get loaf sugar and process it down from there. Huh. Yeah, yeah. And we're we're, you know, we're in that period between the Civil War and World War One, and things kind of explode here for a minute. We start seeing a lot of different books, and a lot of them literally are just Jerry Thomas's bartender's guide with a different name and a different author. I'm like, who was paying attention when they were copywriting these things? What is happening here? So like they would take sections out, but literally I saw four or five different books that had word for word that same description of a cocktail from Jerry Thomas's guide. Yeah, I mean, there's no issue with um, plagiarism. No, there, there is none. There, there was no double checking on that one. So we're, we're getting closer to 1900, 1895. So about 10 years later, we get another that is Modern American Drinks. The subtitle on this one is how to mix and serve all kinds of cups and drinks. Notably, we're still in cups and drinks. So cups would have been like individual portions of punch effectively. Okay. We do get quite a few more cocktail recipes. Notably in this book, this is the first time we see old fashioned in reference to some of these cocktails. So what this means is that they're making these cocktails in the old fashioned style. And what that means, they're using that loaf sugar and, and grating that into the drink and using that, or using a sugar cube instead of using either simple syrup or gum syrup. Well, and the idea is it's been around and it is commonplace enough within society that you can call something an old-fashioned. Right. So when you see an old-fashioned today, it's most likely going to be either rye or whiskey. But in this time, we're still seeing, you know, an old-fashioned brandy cocktail, an old-fashioned gin cocktail. We're, we're seeing this evolve through these books. Still mostly that same formula of spirit, water, sugar, bitters. There's a little bit more license taken in some of these. Some of the, the, the cocktails in this 1895 book are leaving out sugar or syrups, favoring a sweet liqueur instead. So if you're using kind of more of like a cordial liqueur, something like that. You don't need the sugar. The sugar is already in the liqueur. Yeah. So yeah, the old fashioned, as it comes up in here, it says crush a small lump of sugar in a whiskey glass containing a little water. So you're kind of muddling that water into the sugar and breaking it up. Add a lump of ice, two dashes of Angostura bitters, a small piece of lemon peel, one jigger Holland gin, or sub in other spirit. Mix with small bar spoon and serve. 
that's kind of what you think about being an old fashioned today, minus the Holland gin. Yeah, but that's approximately what I think would show up at my table. Right. If you ordered an old fashioned, that's pretty close. Usually anymore, it's going to be an orange peel and not a lemon peel. And like I said, it's either going to be, it's going to be some sort of whiskey, usually rye. So we took that in, and even though it was just the old style of making it, that's still what we call it today. This also gives us the first martini cocktail I've found. Ice, three dashes of orange bitters, one half jigger tom gin, one half jigger Italian vermouth, and a piece of lemon peel. So again, we're foregoing the sugar, but other than that, we're still finding three quarters of that formula. Also optional is to garnish it with a maraschino cherry. So that could itself impart some sweetness. It's still not wrong, but that's definitely not the martini that we think of today. No, we're getting like every single iteration is even closer. We're seeing this kind of category broaden out a little bit. And uh, this book also gives us gems like this. I had to note this one down because I I had to share it. This is called a mountain cocktail. Okay. (laughs) And it is a cocktail glass half full of hard cider, one fresh egg, Seasoned with salt and pepper. That's it. No. Yeah. (laughs) That's the recipe. Okay. So you wonder, because like in every cookbook, there's always one thing that you look at and it's like, there's no way. Like, that's disgusting. You wonder if this was that version of it. Yeah. Where where I work, we make our whiskey sours with an egg white. It gives it more, honestly, it's like using gum syrup. Yeah, no, that's what I was thinking is it's kind of like the modern replacement. For a gum syrup, absolutely. It gives you that texture and also a nice foam on top. And the alcohol is going to kill whatever's in that egg white anyway. But yeah, just so that was the weird one that stood out to me. You have to hope that the cider is very, very, very dry. Like this is the beginning of the Bloody Mary. Yeah, it very well could be. I don't know. Maybe someone was like, you know what? That is not going to work. Let's add some tomato. <laughs> it's a fruit. Let's let's take out the egg and add tomato instead. It's fine. So we're going to step away from that for a minute to talk about what has been usually touted as the first American cocktail. Okay. And I, we're going to talk about why that's not quite right. And that is the Sazerac. Are you familiar with the Sazerac? Yes, but I did not know it was supposedly the first American cocktail. Supposedly. Right. So there's a little bit of controversy with this one. The Sazerac Coffee House opened in New Orleans in 1852. The owner of the bar at the time named it after a cognac that he had license to use, which was the Sazerac de Forge Fee. You know, brand recognition is everything, even in the 1850s. There's a couple different stories that float around about the cocktail's origins or that the word cocktail was uh, coined out of New Orleans for this cocktail. But We've moved away from that as the perception because the timing just doesn't add up. The Sazerac Coffee House opened in 1852. We have reference in London in 1798 of the word being used in a satirical article. So clearly it was already in the public eye enough. Yeah, because it doesn't usually make it to a satirical article if it's not part of the common conversation because they want you to laugh. Right. Even if it was the vulgar term for it. That makes sense for it to be in a satirical article if it's the vulgar term for something else. So if I remember this, the satirical article correctly, it's basically talking about one of the city administrators or something and and like what he normally drinks and how much it costs. Oh, spending the government's money. Something like that. So back to New Orleans. We know that Peixot's Bitters was invented in New Orleans. And supposedly he liked adding his namesake bitters, Antoine Peixot did, to French brandy. The bartender at the Sazerac house liked it and added the absinthe rinse and the sugar cube. 
uh, mildly unlikely, um, because that one also comes with like, he would serve it in a specific French cup that I forget what the actual name of the cup was, but it sounded kind of like a cocktail. It's spurious at best. So the name apparently came from the cup that it was served in. Right. Yeah, that doesn't sound right because there's much earlier documentation. Exactly. So I don't think that one's correct. The other thing that floats around, this one, there is some truth to it at least. I don't know if this is the end all be all of why, but the drink was originally made with cognac or brandy. But at some point in the mid to late 1800s, there was a vine rotting pest infestation called phylloxera in the European wine industry. Now that particular pest is native to North America and it was taken over to Europe by bug specialists or whatever they were, they were trying to preserve it for reasons. Who knows why, why people did things at that point in time, people collected things because they thought they were interesting, but so it was native to, to North America. And I guess the wine varietals that we have here are resistant to it, but then it got to Europe and decimated the vineyards. I'd have to look up exactly like Southern France went from 85,000 hectares of vineyards to like 25,000 producing over the course of 15 years. And wine got very expensive. It got very expensive and it cut off the supply for people living outside of the area. It follows then that it forced a switch to rye, which was the most common, especially in New Orleans at the time, which of course was pretty much half French Creole and half American. So that one at least has a kernel of truth to it. I don't know if it did in fact force a switch to rye, partially because the first written recipe I found, I'm going to say a mixology book or a bartender's book, for a Sazerac specifically from, I want to say it was 1908, specifically calls for brandy. So I don't know if we got back into that phase of like using brandy or if that was his original recipe and he was just like, well, I like it better with brandy. I don't know. There's a couple things. Nothing quite lines up with the Sazerac. And the modern Sazerac company was founded in 1919. And so they kind of get cagey about anything that was before they actually were incorporated. And they kind of embellish some things and make some stuff up and doesn't quite line up. What we do have is in New Orleans in 1843, there was an article published in the New Orleans paper, The Daily Picayune. And it reads, The Sunday Mercury says that if you are at a hotel and wish to call for a beverage compounded of brandy, sugar, absinthe, bitters, and ice, called by the vulgar a cocktail. Okay. So we do have reference in 1843 of basically our classic cocktail. Yeah. But it doesn't call it a Sazerac. It's just a brandy cocktail. Yeah. Add absinthe, no problem. We've already been adding, you know, either maraschino or curacao to it. By 1876, in the new edition of Jerry Thomas's Bartender's Guide, which by this point was called How to Mix Drinks, that's literally just called an improved cocktail. Okay. Yeah. Like that would be the improved brandy cocktail, but the improved whiskey cocktail would be the same thing. It would be whiskey, sugar, absinthe, bitters, ice. I mean, I appreciate Sazerac for jumping on this, right? It's like you gave it a lame name, like the improved cocktail. Right. Uh, the improved which which rolls off the tongue better an improved whiskey cocktail or a sazerac yeah exactly i think i'm gonna go with the sazerac and it sounds exotic caitlin it gets better <laughs> okay good i'm ready remember in that 1862 book we had the fancy brandy cocktail and the fancy gin cocktail yes those have now been scrapped because we're dropping the curacao which by this point 1876 was considered out of fashion and adding maraschino instead, as well as the absinthe. So then in the 1890s, 
remember that bottled brandy cocktail I was talking about earlier from that bartender's guide? Yes. We're coming back to those bottled cocktails. So, 1890s bottled cocktails were being successfully sold elsewhere. So, inspired by this, the owners of the Sazerac House also started doing this. I want to say it was Thomas Handy. They had a whiskey cocktail, Manhattan cocktail, martini cocktail, Tom Gin cocktail, Holland Gin cocktail, or Vermouth cocktail. Now, those were all different bottles marketed under the brand name Sazerac Cocktails. Okay. So you would get like the advertisement. I'll see if I can find the physical advertisement so we can put it up in the show notes. But it's like Handy and Company Sazerac Cocktails, and that's in quotes of Sazerac Cocktails. And then you choose your variety, and it would be like a whiskey, Manhattan, martini, vermouth. So there was no individual Sazerac Cocktail. The Sazerac Cocktail was literally just any bottled cocktail offered under that brand name of a Sazerac Cocktail. So it came to be that the whiskey cocktail was the most popular. There was never a bottled cocktail called the Sazerac cocktail, at least until the beginning of Prohibition. After Prohibition, the Sazerac company, which was now a different company, began marketing bottled cocktails again. It didn't, at this point, market various cocktails under that collective name like the previous company did, but it was just that whiskey cocktail, which they are now calling the Sazerac cocktail. It is still a valid and delicious cocktail, but it was not originally a Sazerac. It was just the company that sold it. It's like Kleenex. Yeah. Or Band-Aids. Or Saran Wrap. It's true. I mean, it's just, we call it by the brand name. I will be real. That took a lot of chasing down. And I literally changed this portion of my outline like four times because I was like, oh, okay, well, here's what we're going... Oh, that's not right. Oh, that's 100% not right. Okay, all right, backing up. I mean, we erased this whole section, start over. There's a 1904 book that kind of cements the bottle cocktails being a thing. Okay. So it, it's still a recipe book, and it's called Drinks As They Are Mixed. It adds a few new cocktails, so we're still seeing this category broaden out. What's interesting is that he also gives a list of equipment that one might need to run a bar, instructions for proper storage of ingredients, the temperature that you should serve or in store different wines and beer, there's a whole list of several pages of different toasts and this ad for pre-bottled cocktails, which reads, A cocktail is a blend of different liquors. To have a perfect cocktail, it should be made of the best ingredients in exact proportions and then allowed to age and blend. No fresh blend is fit to use. All cordials are aged, blended whiskeys are aged, and punches are made and kept for years before being used. Good ginger ales and even sauces are aged before being marketed. Club cocktails, that's the brand, club cocktails are scientifically blended, properly aged, and the finest liquors are only used in their making. If you want a delicious cocktail, buy the club brand, follow directions, and your friends will wonder where you learned the art. So this is really interesting because now this kind of went out of fashion, I would say, by the 50s. And then you start seeing these kind of pre-mixed margarita mixes, and all you need to do is add tequila. So we kind of saw a resurgence of that in, in the 90s, at least. So that's kind of interesting. Oh, yeah. Although I have to say the aging process. <laughs> I don't know about that. I feel like a fresh whiskey cocktail is just about as good as a bottled and aged. That's, that sounds weird to me. Yeah, I'm just slightly concerned. I mean, either they were onto something and we've lost it and like you and I can make bank. No one else steal this. This is our proof and we should be aging these things. Or it's bunk and they were just trying to sell stuff. Yeah. But yeah, so it's interesting that they were marketing these as a way to have cocktails at home without having to keep all of the ingredients, making life easier. It's interesting because at that point it had clearly morphed from a vulgar word. Absolutely. And it just shows you how the lexicon can change over, you know, even in this time period, 50 years, coming from vulgar in the 1840s to turn of the century in 1904 being perfectly acceptable. I mean, 
a lot changed during that time period for everyone. No, you're absolutely not wrong. Still, it's interesting to see that the cocktail evolved with the times. Yeah. So the first time we actually see the Sazerac as a drink that I could find was 1908 in The World's Drinks and How to Mix Them. So there was this golden age of mixology between Civil War and Prohibition. And Bill Boothby or, or William Boothby was one of the greatest West Coast barmen at the time. He was at the San Francisco's Palace Hotel Bar. And he published several editions of this World's Drinks and How to Mix Them in a move that was unusual at the time he actually attributed the local bartenders whenever he could. So he would tell you like for, I've got the Sazerac pulled up right here. It's a Sazerac cocktail a la Armand Renier, New Orleans, Louisiana. See, that's really cool. Yeah. Or at least have a name to kind of put with something or, or where he got it from. We may not be able to find out a lot about the particular bartenders, but we at least have kind of a basis for where this was coming from. And then by 1913, there was another book, Straub's Manual of Mixed Drinks. And pretty much everything that comes in a cocktail glass or what we would call a martini glass today seems to qualify as a cocktail. So Straub's was really the one who was just like, we're just putting it all together. Everything's a cocktail. It's fine. I mean, he still still keeps, you know, the sours and the shrubs and all of that separate. Those are not cocktails, but he's got 40 pages of cocktails. Oh my gosh. Most of those pages have six to seven recipes each. By 1913, like just pre-World War One, like we are seeing a lot. And it's been slowly kind of becoming more and more cocktails. Yeah. Boothby's Books has a, a, a robust list of cocktails. Most of them we see other places too, but quite a few of those are new. And we just keep seeing this definition get broader and broader. Now we're going to come to Ada Coleman. And this is kind of the last thing I really want to talk about. Ada Coleman was working at London's Claridge Hotel in 1899. She quickly moved over to the Savoy Hotel's American Bar. So this was in London. The Savoy Hotel, they called it the American Bar because it was kind of a, a bar in the American style. So she became head bartender in 1903 there. Wow. And trained her successor, Harry Craddock, who took over as head bartender in 1925. He included many of her recipes in his book, which was published in 1930, called the Savoy Cocktail Book. And this is the one people go to today just before the end of Prohibition, because Prohibition was ended in 33. So, you know, of course, it was published in London. It was still legal there. Uh, so a lot of these bartenders would go over during Prohibition. They would go over and travel Europe and, and bartend in Europe. So after Prohibition, that came back, renewed vigor and, and a lot of uh, broader ideas. So inadvertently, <laughs> Prohibition just internationalized the cocktail scene. Absolutely. 100%. But what's interesting is, is that by the time we get to the Savoy cocktail book, pretty much everything is considered a cocktail. There's some mixed drinks that we've seen before, like a crusta or the daiquiri even are considered cocktails. Wow. He does still separate out a lot of those things that we've seen before that are, that are specific classifications, like the flip, the toddy, the sling, julep. We still see those separated out. Those are not considered cocktails. And we do still see that variation in an old-fashioned cocktail. So he gives the old-fashioned cocktail and gives the base instruction of rye whiskey, but then says that it can also be made with spirits like brandy, gin, or rum. Still notable, we're still not seeing vodka anywhere. But even the Savoy cocktail book, there is, and I mean, I for the most part skimmed it. I'm not reading 300 pages of cocktail recipes. No, guys, this is not our day job. So we love it, but we are also unlimited time. If you'd like to read it and report back, Feel free, people. Right. There is no mention of vodka anywhere. And that's, I mean, we're looking at 1930, even in, in England. Which is crazy because I think about cocktails and 90% of them 
that we see these days that are easily accessible contain vodka. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of drinks that we consider to be modern classics are vodka based, you know, the vodka martini, Moscow mule. Technically, yes, there was vodka sold in the US as early as 1934. That was actually distilled in Connecticut. Imported vodka from Russia started in the 70s. And that's where it really is going to start to make an appearance in a lot of cocktails. What are your thoughts now that we've gone through that? Do you think about the cocktail differently? Yeah, because my reference point for when cocktails were becoming a thing, I was thinking about this the other day, knowing we were doing this episode. I knew cocktails really took off in the early 1900s. Sure, yeah. Particularly in the 1920s, in terms of being a more common, accessible part of the language. And the only reason I knew that was because of Downton Abbey. One of the daughters wanted to drink cocktails and the dad said something like, oh, that's vulgar. In a later season, he was serving cocktails. There's cultural references that have given me a general time frame. But first of all, I had zero idea about the vodka. <laughs> I'm very surprised. And I'm kind of shocked that it was so formulaic, that it really had its own categorization for a long time because when we order a cocktail what i think is anything with spirits any kind of mixed drink or yeah any alcoholic beverage that is then mixed with either other alcoholic beverages or non-alcoholic beverages sure. right and then a mocktail is a recreation of that without the alcohol right yeah it seems to me very formulaic up until really 1930 yeah just about you're looking at like 1915 we really start to branch out and the cocktail just starts becoming whatever it is there there's one from world drinks and how to make them one of my favorites is uh, i was looking at this earlier and told my husband this is the most amusing description ever it's called a tin roof cocktail and the description is a tin roof cocktail is one that's on the house that's it so do people like go up and order a tin roof cocktail expecting a free drink or do you just hand somebody and go hey here's a tin roof uh, for the rest of my life, I will be not asking for a tin roof cocktail, but hoping that I am given one. Right? I kind of want to start telling people, oh, uh, here's, a, here's a tin roof. And they're going, what the, what is that? <laughs> I would say I'm most surprised about we'll see you back in two weeks. vodka, and I'm episode. really entertained by the Ice King. <laughs> He's on my list for something to maybe talk about later. I'm kind of fascinated by that man. We'll at least do something short. I don't know. We'll, we'll, we'll see where we get on that one. Give you a teaser. Speaking of teasers, what do we, uh, what do we have on the docket for next time? What, do you th what are we thinking? So next week, I thought I would do the very first ever recognized museum, which happens to be a little bit earlier than people think, roughly around 530 BC, founded by a woman. Okay. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. So, uh, Caitlin, between now and then, where can folks find us and give us feedback and, and check out the images that we have to go along with today's episode? We are on all of your favorite podcast services, if you search Obscuriana. But most importantly, like Laura said, if you want to reach out, give us ideas, feedback, please write us at Obscuriana at gmail.com. Or you can find us on social media. We are on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, all under Obscuriana, and Facebook at Obscuriana Podcast. 
on these, we'll also have fun posts coming up and our show notes linked in the notes below. Also, if you like what you've heard here today or last week, please consider hitting that subscribe button on any of your favorite podcast streaming services. And we'll see you back in two weeks with a new episode.